0: Welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today for our postmodern conservative series on the occasion of the third anniversary of my friend and mentor, Peter Lawler's death, I am joined by another of Peter's friends and interlocutors intellectually in the conservative movement in America, Professor Patrick Deneen. Sir, thank you very much for joining me. I'm looking forward to the conversation, but first of all, please introduce yourself for our audience and introduce us to Peter, to your relationship to him and to his thought, of course.
1: Sure, my name is Patrick Deneen. I am a professor of political theory and political science, constitutional studies at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Prior to joining the faculty at Notre Dame, I taught first at Princeton University 97 to 2005, and then taught at Georgetown University from 2005 to 2012. I first got to know Peter during the time I was teaching at Princeton. I was invited by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute to uh, join them for a summer honors program. It was the summer, I think, of 2001. It was an occasion, a gathering of college students from across the USA, some international, mostly U.S. students, and we met at Oxford University, Oriel College, which just yesterday was very much in the news. It's where the uh, statue of Cecil Rhodes faces the high street in Oxford. Oriel College, associated strongly with St. John Henry Newman, was the location of that honor seminar, and I was one of the faculty mentors brought in, and that was the first time I met Peter. He instantly struck me, as I think he did most people who met him, as incredibly quirky, extremely funny, belly achingly funny, and like genius level smart without really showing it off. That was the amazing thing is he could just in a very off the cuff manner incorporate, you know, hundreds if not thousands of years of different thinkers and different philosophical traditions and weave them together in a narrative that made complete sense and yet struck you as profoundly original and always afforded an extraordinarily unique insight. So that was the first time I met Peter. And then I saw him pretty regularly at those conferences in successive years, probably for at least a decade. We would be in that summer honors program together for a week or two.
0: Uh, And then
1: we began to see each other a bit more often. I would invite him up eventually up to Georgetown. He invited me several times to come and speak at Barry College, where he taught for most of his career. And I would say that we developed a friendship, but also over a period of time, especially in the maybe last six years or seven years of his life, began to develop some interesting intellectual differences that I think was the occasion of a number of really engaging and, I hope, enlightening debates, many of which appeared in print, a number of which were uh, in person and uh, debates and so forth. So Peter and I were friends, but also, I think the word you use, interlocutors, would often find interesting and important differences. When you asked me to be on the podcast on the occasion of the third year of his passing, I didn't hesitate. I think like you, I very much miss Peter. I miss his voice. When I think of who I wish were around right now to talk about what we're seeing in our politics, I can't think of anyone else I would rather hear from
0: than Peter Lawler. Yes, I entirely agree. Peter would never tire of repeating a Poucvillian statement that America is constantly getting better and worse, both at the same time, if in different ways. And one often looks to him with the notion of, where's the good in this? I, I see something happening that makes me baffled or angry, and I would like to see what is the good part about this. But he often did find reasonable causes of hope. Partly it was his temper. One of the reasons I learned so much from him was his sense of humor. I sometimes get gloomy or dark, and this was very, very helpful. He had equanimity. He seemed almost unflappable, and that's a remarkable quality in a serious, honest man who engages with public affairs in these times. I got to know him because of Postmodern Conservative, the blog, which is where the series of podcasts we're doing here, takes the name. I was introduced to Peter by common friends and became part of the team that blogged in the Incarnation at the National Review Online. And of course, we were all surprised, shocked. He died and part of his project of offering a kind of commentary that is intelligent, funny, warm, loving, not interested primarily in partisanship, but in insight through conversation, In a way, this was suspended, and at the American Cinema Foundation, we have tried to bring some of that back. Most of the team, I should say, of the Postmodern Conservative blog, in its various incarnations, at first things at uh, National Review Online, is now at the foundation in various capacities. We do podcasts, we try to spread his Tauvillian Studies of America. And uh, at the same time, of course, as you said, part of what made Peter special was his cultivation of friendship, including disagreements made for a variety of views in conservative America. It was neither doctrinaire nor narrow-minded, principled men who can take a serious interest, not a heuristic, merely confrontational interest in each other's ideas. As a young man, that example and that education made a big difference, made me somewhat less combative, I have to admit, and more willing to look at people and uh, think that there may be something that they see that I don't see, that I should first try and think through and then disagree if it comes to that. And it has done me a lot of good, as has the getting to know of his friends. He was unique in that respect. I keep meeting people even after Peter's death, whose only real relationship to me is that they too were friends of Peter Lawler. That immediately tells me there's something with these men that will make them interesting and that I should treat them with interest, not just with respect. I've tried to show some of that variety of thought from James Pulos to Rod Dreher. Previous guests on the podcast have introduced a variety of ideas that had Peter at the center and a sense of the range of thought and of ideas about political action as well, since we don't all agree on what should be done or how to judge events. That is why I'm especially glad to have you here as well. I came to know your work through Peter and was, as a young man, a spectator in print of the disagreements and the agreements, the application of serious education and thinking to events. That is what postmodern conservatism was about. And what Peter Lawler meant by postmodern conservatism was simply this. We have many good things from modernity. We are in many ways modern people, but we have also seen crisis after crisis, some of them of a global character, and it is no longer plausible to simply believe in silly ideas or naive ideas of progress. There's something wrong with us. There's not just what's right with us. And we need to look not for radicalizations of what's wrong with us, but for pre-modern solutions to some of our problems. We need to look, that is to say, for correctives to our excesses. This was his Torvillian understanding of what's right and what's wrong about America and a guide for how to think that has helped me. I recognize it in most of the people that I think of as friends of Peter Lawler, as possible interlocutors, because we already share certain concerns. With that, please, since you are a far more distinguished thinker and author, I would like you to lead the conversation about Peter's thoughts
1: Well, yeah, before I do that, what strikes me about what you just said, and in particular, thinking about Peter's influence on just a wide range of people, what always struck me about Peter was I think he would be categorized in some ways as a public intellectual. He was eager to be published in lots of venues where he knew he would be read. Fairly early on, he adopted blog posting, writing online. I think he wrote for James Poulos for Culture 11, Postmodern Conservative Blog, which I think James also founded. And then, as you point out, it was for some time, it was at first things, then the National Review. And um, at any rate, he was eager to write for a public audience. And so I think maybe one way to think of him is he was not only a public intellectual, but he wanted to be a kind of public teacher. And what's striking about when you think about when you describe the people that you meet who got to know Peter through his writing, my impression is that Peter's influence as an intellectual was almost more marked among young people that he encountered beyond his campus. I think he was a renowned and legendary teacher at Barry College, but he created a kind of community of students that went far beyond his own campus. And and I think maybe in distinction with a lot of professors, a lot of professors will cultivate a certain kind of following among their students, and that will kind of be the end of it. What's remarkable about Peter is he cultivated a student following that went well beyond his own campus. And so, like you, I continue to encounter people who knew Peter, maybe who never met Peter, but knew him through his writing. And I think his influence is considerable, in part because he really sought to be a teacher in the most expansive way that he could be. So to get to his thought, I think you're absolutely right to focus on I've been thinking a lot about the phrase he would, he would use, and I think it's a phrase that he really gleaned from a Tocquevillian understanding of our time, which is, uh, was his understanding that everything is always getting better and worse. In other words, he wanted to place himself between, you could say, the two dominant ways in which we tend to divide politically in our world today, one of which we could say is liberal or progressive, uh, which holds the view that everything is getting better. And we can certainly see that's the case among progressives today, that as we watch statues being torn down around the world, this kind of sense, this overconfident hubris that we have superseded all of the sins of the past. We are now increasingly unstained by the sins of our forebears. And this is, you know, this is the kind of pernicious teaching, the idea that we have achieved a level of moral progress that makes us better than people who have preceded us. So Peter firmly held the view that we're not simply just getting better. But he also wanted to argue against those who I think you could say fall into the kind of conservative camp. And maybe one of the ways that you could define conservatism, to borrow from our mutual friend Mark Henry, who ran the ISI program for many years, the summer program, Mark Henry would say that conservatives are defined by one feature. They all agree that something has gone wrong. They disagree vehemently about when that happened. (laughs) So the conservatives will all agree things have gone downhill. Since you know 1789 or 1968 or 1381 or you know the year one, uh, we all agree something has gone terribly wrong, and then we spend the rest of our time debating what year that was and therefore what we should go back to. And I think this phrase "everything is getting both better and worse" is, was Peter's way of differentiating himself from both the progressives of his time and the conservatives of his time, arguing. And this is why Peter would spend a lot of time arguing against progressives and a lot of time arguing against his fellow conservatives trying to, in some ways, provide some ballast for what he saw as the dangerous tendencies. And I think this is why, you know, he developed this idea of postmodern conservative, which was to say, unlike the progressives, I think we need to move beyond the progressivism of modernity, right? So when he talked about postmodernism, of course, he was quite clear that he didn't mean postmodernism in the sense that the French deconstruction poststructuralist tradition uses that phrase. He saw that form of postmodernism, I think, as you said, as a kind of hypermodernism. In other words, it's a modernism on steroids, the idea that we can completely construct ourselves, that we can refashion our identities, in some senses, like the tearing down of statues, that we can completely erase anything that might have defined us from the past and make of ourselves a kind of project of construction. He thought we had to move beyond that form of modernism, even that form of postmodernism a genuine postmodernism, a postmodernism that moved beyond progressive faith in self-creation. But he also believed that it had to be postmodern. It couldn't be pre-modern. It couldn't be a nostalgic ideal of returning to medieval Christianity or pre-68 or 1950s domesticity. He really thought that we were moderns. And so we had to embrace the gifts and the benefits of modernity, which for Peter included things like Waffle House and McDonald's coffee, which he She praised often, but that it needed to be a genuine kind of postmodernism that avoided both the nostalgia of the premodernists, of the conservatives, and the optimistic, naive faith of the progressives. He kind of established a position that he found himself tweaking everyone, depending on the debates he was engaged in and trying to correct what he saw as their kind of respective excesses.
0: Yeah, you're right to point out this very strange fact that he published in very many different venues without much concern with whether he agreed with the editorial line or the ideology, but only with whether he'd get a hearing. You know, you could say that at one outer edge of his friendship and conversation would be Rod Rehr and the Benedict Option and the concern with an increasingly totalitarian progressive ideology and politics. We talked about that recently on the podcast, but you remind me that at the same time, Peter Lawler was sort of friends with Peter Thiel, the vaguely transhumanist libertarian and with websites like Big Think, the five minutes of strange ideas to get people thinking notion of blogging. And so he had this very unusual range, but you're also right that what corresponds to this willingness to go talk in a friendly, somewhat teacherly manner to everyone, was a certain willingness also to tweak everyone. (laughs) Presumably, this is rare, precisely because as a writer or a teacher or as a politically committed citizen, you know, you stick to your own and you treat those well and other people, they don't get even maybe the benefit of the doubt can be exposed to sarcasm or humiliation. Peter was very ironic, but genuinely friendly, so he never really felt the need to humiliate anybody. That's, of course, past strange, past shocking, even recent discourse. It's, again, a thing of wonder.
1: Yeah, as someone who was often at the receiving end of his critiques, you know, his demeanor was genial, amusing, as I mentioned, kind of quirky, but his critiques could be quite severe. He would stick a shiv in you while he was smiling with a twinkle in his eye. In some ways, he wouldn't hold back when he thought he had to uh, unload uh, the intellectual heavy guns, but he did it in a way I think you're right. Put it this way, many intellectual friendships have been broken when there have been intellectual disagreements because people are obviously very serious about their ideas and often will take criticism as a very personal ad hominem attack. And having had that happen and probably having also dished out those kinds of critiques, I've had those kinds of friendships diminish or even break. I would be surprised if there were any friendships that were broken as a result of Peter's critiques, simply because he was always serious in his critiques of those he disagreed with, but always very genial, in some ways generous, for the most part, <laughs> generous in how he would offer his critiques.
0: Yeah, he was an ironic man, and he had something of a devilish sense of humor. Whenever he could find a phrase that would uh, mock a self-important thinker from a philosopher everybody has to read or know of to some uh, fashionable intellectual, he would use it. (laughs) Uh, So he indeed, in a way, did not hold back. I think he enjoyed the possibility of taking a playful revenge stylistically and with arguments rather than the more common revenge of trying to humiliate people. He was not above his own partisanship by any stretch of the imagination. He saw himself as a Southerner, as a Catholic, as an American, as a Tocquevillian, even to an extent as a Straussian. And he was serious about all these things as what makes human inquiry and life, aside from study, both very serious and very good. His criticisms are funnier than they are insulting, presumably because even when you criticize people, if you've discovered something, that's genuinely pleasurable and in itself rewarding. That, I think, is one of the truly important lessons. It's not just the acrimony, the anger of political disagreement and of intellectual disagreement, the suggestion implied that you don't actually have to live with other people if you disagree with them, which is a delusion and what Tocqueville would call a form of individualism. A continuous narrowing down of interests and of the experience of other people and the association with other people. But even beyond this delusion, there's a kind of loss that comes with too much desire to destroy another person's ideas or his self respect. We learn things from people we disagree with, and it's also possible that they make mistakes. There's an entire part of human being that is not malevolent, but often in the wrong. That's a strangely paradoxical thing about human beings. It's hard to explain why should human beings, since we are rational, why should we be lying so often? Or how is it even possible not to tell the truth? But it also is interesting to wonder how people make mistakes. How can you be wrong about things? How can you insist in your wrongness? It is a somewhat perverse feature of human nature, but immediately noticeable. People are not always guilty when they are wrong. And that seems to be lost in disagreement, especially on politics, because of the stakes involved. And I think that's dangerous because it encourages people to think that words can replace deeds in a perverse way. That if somebody has the wrong ideas, he's a bad person, and he will, you know, bring about the end of the nation, if not of mankind. Whereas speeches are not, most of the time, doings. A certain gentility and friendship has to accompany seriousness so that we don't end up believing that if we say the right thing or win the right argument, now we are in control of reality, which is not true, despite what popularity or the fervent slogans of a day or a month might encourage people to believe. Yeah,
1: so I guess, you know, one of the ways we could think about Peter engaging in a series of discrete debates is to think a little bit about how to situate his thought. And you mentioned one of his influences being Leo Strauss. He identified himself as someone who had been influenced by Strauss's thought as a kind of Straussian. He called himself one of a small number of faith-based Straussians, uh, Christian Straussian. And he regarded that as a real outlier, given that, in his view, most Straussians tended to be atheistic or at least agnostic. Of course, there continue to be a lot of debates over Strauss's thought, what Strauss ultimately thought, where you would situate him. There are some who view Strauss as ultimately having identified with the ancient thinkers, and in some ways at least identifying with the Socratic form of inquiry. Some identify Strauss as having had a sympathy with the Greek city, um, although I think that's not anything but a majority opinion. But many Straussians, especially in the United States, ultimately regard Strauss as having sort of thrown his hat in favor of the modern form of liberal democracy, what he thought of as the low but solid ground of what he described as the first wave of modernity the first wave of modernity as it's inaugurated, especially by thinkers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, who embraced from the classical tradition of view of human beings as flawed, human beings as motivated by self-interest, Strauss identified Machiavelli as perhaps the first thinker to break with the classical tradition, precisely because Machiavelli, you know, famously in Prince 15, argues that unlike previous thinkers who only could imagine ideal republics and principalities, he wanted to offer something useful, utile. And what turns out to be useful is understanding the true motivations of human beings as they are, rather than the motivations you might want them to have, how they ought to be. And this is exactly what Machiavelli states. He wants to take people as they are, not as they ought to be. Strauss calls this the first wave of modernity and identifies Machiavelli, Hobbes, and Locke as having inaugurated that tradition. A reaction to that tradition is what he calls the second wave of modernity, which rejects the view that human beings are to be fundamentally understood as flawed and merely as creatures that are motivated by self-interest, but can actually be shaped in and through historical time, and in particular embraces a view or a belief in progress. And this becomes what we think of today as the progressive tradition. He views figures like Rousseau, Kant, Hegel as having inaugurated the second wave of modernity. And then the third wave of modernity Strauss describes as having been breaking with that tradition, arguing that really all that politics ultimately is, is reducible to a kind of will to power in which the strong realize and become aware of the way in which they can dominate and ought to dominate the weak. This philosophy, of course, is the nihilistic philosophy he associates with Nietzsche. And what Strauss then concludes in this essay called The Three Waves of Modernity is that the first wave is embodied or instantiated by the United States of America. It's the nation founded as a consequence to the first wave of modernity. The Soviet Union, he argues, was inaugurated or instantiated through inspiration of the second wave of modernity. And the third wave of modernity was instantiated in the fascism of Germany that he escaped in the 1930s. And so he said of the three great ideological options in modernity, represented in the United States with liberal democracy, represented in the Soviet Union with communism, or represented in Nazi Germany through fascism, many of Strauss's students regard the United States as the second best option and the only realistic option in modernity. And I think it's fair to say, to get back to Peter, Peter agreed with part of that argument that certainly of those three ideologies, liberal democracy was the best, but it had a kind of fatal flaw that he frequently talked about. Its Lockean self-understanding was, first of all, flawed because it was not a true conception of human beings. It contained a truth about human beings, but it was not the full truth about human beings. And so to the extent that America attempted to be a Lockean nation, it was ultimately likely to be as flawed as these other regimes. But Peter also held the view, and this is where I think he had a really interesting and sophisticated understanding, and this is where we ended up having a lot of disagreements and debates, that America often thought of itself as a Lockean nation, but wasn't actually a Lockean nation. That in a phrase that he borrowed from Orestes Brownson and John Courtney Murray, he argued that America was built better than the founders knew. America was built better than they knew. That the founding fathers, especially figures like Thomas Jefferson and depending on when you read them, figures like James Madison, they thought they were building a Lockean nation. But in fact, because they had the Christians in the American political reality, there were compromises that had to be reached. He argued that the Declaration, far from being the Lockean document that someone like my former colleague Michael Zucker would have argued, the Declaration was in fact a kind of perfect example of this compromise struck between a kind of pre-modern inheritance of the Calvinist tradition that had settled, especially in the northeast of the United States, and this Lockean tradition, which contained a truth about human beings, that we are individuals, that ourselves should be defined by an inviolable personal identity. But that what Locke did was to deny a truth from Christianity is that personal identity, that personal self, is also relational. And our Christian inheritance corrects this Lockean inheritance. Now, Peter was concerned, and here he and I agreed quite a good deal. Peter was deeply concerned that America was becoming more Lockean. We're talking about the phrases, his little catchphrases. He would often argue that we had to put Locke in a lockbox. Our Lockean tendency needed to be constrained. And he also saw that our Lockeanism and the kind of progressive tradition that he especially associated with Darwin, that the Lockean and Darwinian traditions were actually beginning to kind of meld in the United States. And it was melding in what he called a creeping and creepy libertarianism. Again, another great phrase of Peter's. And it was melding actually through someone like a Peter Thiel, who he saw as, on the one hand, very Lockean, very much believing in our radical individualism. But also was Darwinian in the sense that we increasingly were capable of taking over our own sort of biological development. And he saw this combination of things, especially in the transhumanist movement. And a lot of his writings, for those not familiar with Peter, some of his most remarkable writings are on the question of biotechnology, in which he gave very distinct, sometimes quirky, but always deeply insightful understandings. And these writings, just by the power of their intellectual force, ended up getting him noticed and eventually nominated and serving on the Presidential Bioethics Commission, which was formed under President George W. Bush, convened and chaired by Leon Cass. So Peter, through his own interaction with the Straussian tradition, especially Strauss's arguments about the nature of modernity, Peter ended up, you know, really offering, I think, a very distinct spin on Strauss's understanding, especially by adding back in something that Strauss tends to neglect, which is the power of the Christian tradition into the modern period, and arguing that that as a kind of corrective needed to be reinforced, you know, accepting the benefits and the gifts of modernity, but also recognizing its inherent weaknesses and its sort of self-destructive tendencies.
0: Yeah, This is the basic anthropology that Peter Lawler always explained, professed. We are in some sense individual and in some sense relational and we all know this. You can will yourself into all sorts of identities or deeds, but you can't will yourself into being a father. You either have a son or you don't. It depends on that other person as well, not just on you. And that indeed we have come to lose sight of that. And perhaps this is what as friends of Lawler, but I think in other sense as Straussians were always aware of that individualism is getting gradually crazier without people noticing it enough or fighting it off. There are many disagreements about what should be done, whether we need to restore certain civic virtues or political way of thinking, or we need to restore philosophical way of thinking, or we need to restore faith as the grounding of community. There are several ideas about what correctives we need, but there is a broad agreement that we need correctives, that we're going in the wrong direction in a significant, if not entirely or completely deluded way. And that is indeed this Lockean problem, right? It is typical of an American, especially the man, if he receives praise for his honorable behavior, to say, "just doing my job, as though contract work and productive activity could suffice to explain why somebody would risk his own safety for the sake of somebody else. There is a certain manly nobility, a stoic reserve, refusing to brag. But there's also a strange tendency to reduce everything to work and productivity, to reduce the complexity of human action so that you can avoid the questions of nobility especially, but not exclusively. Hearing you talk about this, I was reminded of something that Le Strauss said in a joking remark. He was good friends with Edward Banfield at the University of Chicago, and then Banfield left for Harvard, which Strauss disapproved of because Harvard, though a very famous place, was not intellectually respectable, and a man should not sacrifice his wonderful friendships for this sort of prestige. And he pointed out that there was something strange about the great scholar Ed Banfield. He was always acting well. He was a decent man, secretly generous, didn't even like to boast about it. And yet he would never consider thinking about natural law or natural right, the grounding of morality in our nature. Strauss says that he thinks that's American rugged individualism. That's this Lockean excess of people that refuse, even in their own experience, to connect their activity to nature, morality, and what is most intriguing and most noble in our behavior.
1: Yeah, what, listening to you talking about a critique of someone leaving a place for prestige, to bring us back to sort of personal qualities of Peter, I mentioned earlier that Peter spent his career at Barry College. I would hazard to guess that most Americans, probably very few academics, have heard of Barry College not a well-known school. It's well outside of Atlanta, about an hour, maybe two hours from Rome, Georgia. On the occasions I would go down and visit Peter and give talks on his campus, it's a noteworthy campus because I think he told me, it's probably true, that it's geographically, in terms of the amount of land that it has, it's the largest campus in, in the country. But it's also a very small school when you think about the number of students who go there. It's probably not the most selective school, arguably not terribly selective even within Georgia. And yet Peter was fiercely devoted to Barry College. He would never fail to talk about the students he was teaching, classes he would teaching. In fact, one of the things that I always look forward to in his blogs was his telling us about what he was teaching. He was actually really good at telling us whatever book they were reading, and he would always put together really interesting syllabi. You know, it was clear that on the Barry campus, he was a kind of intellectual titan. But the point I really want to make is that he was fiercely devoted to Barry because ultimately he was fiercely devoted to the idea of a liberal arts education. I think if he was a different kind of a person, given his intellect, how learned he was, he would have played the academic game in order to use his position to get to a higher ranked school. He would have done the kind of publishing you need to do to write yourself out of, quote unquote, an inferior school to get to a more prestigious school. And I think it really is deep testimony to Peter that he never, I've never heard him express ever once a desire to get to teach at a better school. I think in many ways, his visibility and the many, many invitations he received to give lectures and to teach and to do seminars all around the country, I think that satisfied that itch. If he had that itch, that was sufficient. He was profoundly devoted to the liberal arts tradition. I think, if I'm not incorrect, I think his last book that was published just around the time of his death was a book defending liberal arts. I might even have it nearby here. Oh, here it is. It's uh, on my shelf here. It was a book published with St. Augustine's Press here in South Bend, published in 2016, the year before he passed away. And it's called American Heresies in Higher Education. It's a collection of, I think, again, many of his essays that he wrote, but many of these essays are about what he saw as the crisis of higher education, and in particular, the crisis of higher education inasmuch much as higher education was departing from a core commitment to the liberal arts. And I think for Peter, the liberal arts, properly conceived and executed, conformed to maybe, I think, one of his deepest teachings which is that all these philosophies we've been talking about in some ways get human beings wrong because they try to describe us in some ways in some kind of narrow, either a political sense, an economic sense, what you're describing, right, being productive, Uh, being progressive, bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth. I mean, he saw some of Marx and Locke as essentially very similar thinkers, even though we think of them as opposites, because what they both wanted was a kind of hedonistic paradise. They just differed on how it was we were going to get there. And of course, he saw transhumanism as the perfect wedding of Locke and Marx. Through a kind of manufacturing of our own perfection, we would achieve some kind of final satisfaction. All of our yearnings, the fact of our insufficiency and our imperfection was supposedly going to be overcome through a kind of scientific intervention. We've been talking about some of Peter's phrases, and one of his phrases that I think defined his understanding of human beings the most was that he thought that human beings were wandering and wandering creatures, that we were consigned to wonder and consigned to wandering. One of his books is entitled, uh, oh gosh, Is it Homeless and at Home in America? And uh, Aliens in America. And it's precisely that theme, this very Augustinian theme. You know, worth noting his middle name was Augustine, Peter Augustine Law. That's right. He would sound this Augustinian theme that we are pilgrims. And maybe the biggest mistake we make as human beings, you know, going back to Augustine's critiques of the many heresies at his time, was that effort to make us either at home in the world or to make the world into heaven. Both of these impulses, while you can still see them at play today, Peter viewed as fundamentally mistaken and indeed the source of a lot of political perniciousness. So, you know, in thinking about his, who he was as a person, his devotion to the liberal arts for him was the way in which you rightly prepared young people, students, for a life of wandering and a life of wandering. That the liberal arts wasn't to provide you certain kinds of answers. It certainly wasn't merely to provide you with the technical skills to succeed in the modern economy. It was to prepare the human being for a life of being, in some ways, never completely at home and yet forced to make a home. And in a really interesting way, the person who would most emphasize this Augustinian theme, perhaps of most anyone that I knew, nevertheless, it seemed to me made a really profound home in little Rome, Georgia, at out-of-the-way Berry College, where he
0: seemed utterly satisfied and deeply committed to making a life in that place. Yeah, Peter often emphasized that the harshest and most serious truths about America that Tocqueville revealed was that there is no higher education in America. Even knowledge has to be useful. It has so often to be reduced to commerce or even just to confidence games, really. But instead, there is this other possibility. At certain points, he identified this with Oberlin College in its mid-19th century founding. Back when Protestants believed in God, they might seem like crazy fanatics now, but in fact, they were more or less the Puritan ideal of America, men and women black and white could go to school but also students and teachers alike also had to work peter talked about this that this is what we want to insist on about being human nobody is too stupid to learn and nobody is too good to work that makes us in a way the same middling despite our differences our different talents and discipline and circumstances there is something to bring people together and therefore america needs this corrective of the liberal arts Taking thought seriously without hurrying into deciding that this one weird trick, this one idea, this one TED talk is going to transform your existence and indeed existence as such. Neither nature nor human nature is that easily grasped. The very serious things we wrestle with about love and death, about faith and reason that play out in our lives in various ways even without our always being aware of them. These things take time and a rigorous formation that has to counterbalance the excessive materialism and individualism. Otherwise, we will indeed end up as Oberlin College has ended up, a den of progressivist inequity and iniquity. That's a sign of degeneration along with other signs that are more hopeful about there being more justice at the same time, of course. Peter, indeed, dedicated his life, and at the same time, he made it seem like it was a good life. It was also a pleasant life to be a teacher, to be among students, to wander together with them, and to accept mortality above all. Since we can love each other and know some good things about being human, it's ultimately all right to be mortal. Education is supposed to contribute to that as well, so that people become less desperate for what you're talking about, for transhumanism, for the convergence, as Peter called it, of liberalism and libertarianism. There is this danger that people will stop believing that being human is even good. That the more people talk about fantasies of progress, instead of making them excited, enthusiastic, or even hardworking, it makes them hateful, and they want to destroy everything rather than really achieve anything that they might supposedly believe in, because they have stopped believing that they will get to that utopia of progress, but they can never let go of the hatred of any past injustice or suffering, because ultimately they are miserable, they are unhappy. In this serious sense concerning the liberal arts, they are uneducated. They never learn to deal with the human condition, and they will take it out on everybody else, on the nation, and if they get the chance, the world. He saw this as stemming from a failure of education to make people realistic. Postmodern conservatism, he said, is a return to realism. It's when you realize that you're mortal, but you have a nature, you have certain powers, but you long for God. This is the complexity of being human, and you will have to square with it. Some part of it is individual, some part of it is relational, so you'll have to square with it together with other people whom you have to love even if you don't always understand them or agree with them. This is proving, I think, a very necessary teaching, if also a very difficult one, as the sorry fate of the liberal arts suggests.
1: Yeah, I am thinking about Peter and his thoughts on education. I've been trying to imagine how he would respond to trajectories that were already evident to him uh, at the time he passed away in 2017, but which have really intensified. They've been intensifying for the last several years. And now in the last just several days, the outburst of identity politics and the clear effort to double down on identity politics as the defining feature of what education is and will be going forward. To my knowledge, and maybe you know better than I, Peter didn't write at great length about what is the source and cause of identity politics. And I think even now, many of us are still trying to come to an understanding of exactly you know, what are its sources and what's its nature. From what I was able to see in Peter's work, what little he wrote about it, he saw it as a, you know almost a new form of hypermodernism, which is that identity politics was based on, again, a kind of merging of a Lockeanism and a Darwinianism. On the one hand, obviously, its Lockean nature is that our identities are merely the constructs that we ourselves put together. We focus on our identity because it's the ultimate space where the Lockean project can take place. If Locke was writing several hundred years ago about human powers to change and transform the natural world, then what Peter understood was that project was increasingly turning inward. And this is, of course, the transhumanist project where the reconstruction of nature for the purpose of satisfying our desires was ultimately going to become a project about trying to change and construct human nature. And so that identity politics was just a new form of this Lockean project. But I think you would also describe this as, in some ways, partaking from a kind of branch of Darwinian politics, in some ways, subsuming our identities into these more historical, even kind of species identities, you know, here reducible to group identities. And in this sense, you have this interesting contradiction at the heart of identity politics. You have those who argue that our identity is what we say it is. And I think you see this especially in the transgender movement. Whatever my biology says, if I identify as a man, even if my biology says I'm a woman, then I'm a man. But then you have arguments that your identity is really the sum of your race or your particular ethnicity. And so when was it Rachel Dolezal claims that she's an African-American, this is a kind of outrage for people in the identity politics world because she's in some ways attempting to make herself into an identity that she's not entitled to. So there's a kind of interesting contradiction at the heart of this identity politics that I think Peter saw. I think he ultimately saw the two paths of modern philosophy, the Lockean and the Darwinian path. And while these were in some senses contradictory, they also were increasingly converging. For a good deal of time, he saw them converging in this transhumanist world. But I suspect today he would be emphasizing the way they were converging in the outburst and the internally contradictory form in which this identity politics movement was playing itself out. But here again, I could just say one of the things that I would sorely love to hear would have been Peter's take on what's going on right now and how we should best understand this, because I know Peter would have a unique,
0: unpredictable, and enlightening take on things. Yeah, the best we can do is try to glean some things and think in light of what he did say. One thing that obviously would not have surprised him because he talked about it at length is that an important part of identity politics, which is political correctness, he attributed that along with Tocqueville to America's ongoing democratization through commerce. Commerce, he said, after Tocqueville, breeds niceness. You can never insult any potential customer. You have to be as quiet and quiescent as possible, as welcoming. And that leads, as we see with corporations today, to try to seem desperately moral so that they will not be in any way endangered or involved in quarrels. They have to be neutral somehow, and that actually does not mean freedom of speech, but in fact it means increasing political correctness. That is to say, niceness enforced by fear. That's part of the danger with commerce. It softens manners to the point that it makes people cowards. We indeed see this all the time. People begging for their jobs before online mobs... But indeed, entire corporations trying to act woke so that they avoid that fate, or forestall it at least. And that is one of the very ugly practical parts of the problem. But you're right, there is also a deeper problem of why is there so much need for humiliation in political contest, and why is there this desperate desire for identities? Some of the contradictions are so obvious that you begin to suspect that politics is making people far stupider than nature made them, since the people who one day argue that nature is the absolute standard of legislation, and since homosexuality is natural, it should be legislated, the next day say that in fact nature is the worst tyrant, not the liberator, because nature can trap you in the wrong body, and then you have to use scientific mutilation to liberate yourself from nature. Now, that is a terrible contradiction, but it also works as a certain continuum. There is a through line there, this notion of self-creation that in one way achieves its pinnacle in transhumanism. You can get rid of death. The transhumanist, like the transgender, believes that the problem is not that the world is not safe enough for your body or your identity. The problem is your body itself. That body is mortal and you're trapped in it. You're a you that is slowly dying. How not rebel against it? How could you be quiescent to this worst tyranny, which is nature? So fighting against that in a way is transhumanism, but in another way, it's identity politics. It requires that you assert your radical Rousseauian Hegelian freedom to create your own identity, to assert a freedom against nature. I've been recently rereading Postmodernism, Rightly Understood, where Rousseau takes up more space than he had since Peter's work on Tocqueville. Rousseau tells you that you're only free when you're fighting against nature. There was once this time where nature worked out because you were essentially a beast. But that time has passed. History has started. By some kind of strange, unfortunate accident, we have become able to imagine our death to fear the future. We have become dissatisfied with ourselves and take that dissatisfaction out on each other. And it is only by a full overcoming of history that we could ever achieve happiness again, which would mean, strangely enough, the full overcoming of nature, the full return to nature. That is, the abolition of humanity, especially in postmodernism, rightly understood, he says the politics of modern philosophy leads to death, to annihilation, to the destruction of all humanity as a bad mistake, an accident. The identity politics person is just a few steps down a path of rebellion against nature, against God, against other people, but hasn't yet arrived at the full awareness of the dimension of the problem. No amount of affirmation of an identity, no amount of destruction of previous historical identities will square anybody with the fact that they are mortal. They cannot have everything that they want, and whatever they can have, they can only have for a while. And since it is not possible, by revenge, by the logic of tit-for-tat, by the oppressed, oppressing the oppressors in turn, can achieve many delights of cruelty, perhaps, but it cannot make the oppressed immortal. It cannot make them happy. It cannot make them wise. And so identity politics must continuously lead to further exacerbations. I could say that Peter did accept to an extent the Straussian thesis of the three waves of modernity and to an extent applied it to the American case, that Americans used to be far more Lockean and they are now far more Rousseauian. A cult of sincerity has taken over people who used to be far more reserved. That is a very good sign of rousseauianism Or as Burke would say, the Rousseauian or the modern taste is brutality and sentimentality. And we indeed see this in so many venues in our society. So there is this second wave where your freedom is an assertion of freedom against the past and against nature, and that requires self-creation, self-authorship, man replacing God as author. I think Strauss was to a large extent right about this problem with trying to philosophize politics. He got his idea of the three waves of modernity from the three waves of paradox at the core of Plato's Republic, where Plato tries to point out what happens if you follow down the path of rationalizing politics. You will lead to a third wave where you will no longer say we just need to reason about nature with Hobbes and Locke and get our artificial powers, and it will not be enough to say, as we now say, we have to reason about human nature and historicize. It will be required to say we have to rationally conclude that reason itself is the problem. That's why we're unhappy. We have to destroy reason in the name of reason. The Enlightenment leads to madness. We have seen indeed that horror play out in Europe and because of Europe throughout the world in the 20th century. It might be that Americans are doing it too. Mm -hmm. That this second wave of modernity, this Rousseauian affirmation of identity, of a kind of freedom against what was given or prior, against tradition as well as nature, against God as well as science, that will lead to this political madness where you have to destroy reasoning itself. So, you know, everything you've just said calls to mind, something I think
1: we should talk about a bit, um, some really significant differences that I think developed between Peter and myself, and you could say more broadly between a postmodern conservative view and a more traditionalist conservative view that I might represent. I think everything you just said, I suspect Peter would agree with, and you're drawing it from Peter's thought, but I think it, it reveals a kind of ambiguity in Peter's thinking that allowed him to kind of play two sides in a way that was meant to provoke but also you know i would charge sometimes led him to avoid some of the tougher conclusions that might have to be drawn in particular to go back to what we were talking about earlier peter would often repeat the phrase that everything is better and worse that politics modern society is constantly a kind of process of getting better and worse my own position tends to be that it's actually probably more worse than better I think that was really the ultimate source of a kind of divide. And it's a kind of divide between Peter's conservatism, as we began by talking about, which was you know, somewhat more sanguine about modernity, the correctives that were on offer, and my own take and my own position, which is that modernity unleashes a kind of process that is not inevitable, but strongly tends to to a kind of decline and a degradation that increasingly hollows out the sources of correction. Now, I would argue my case by invoking the same thinker that Peter would argue for his case, which was Tocqueville, right? So where Peter saw Tocqueville, and I think you can find these passages in Tocqueville, Tocqueville sort of arguing democracy has lots of problems, but of course its problems are no worse. And in some ways, they're not as bad as the problems of aristocracy. Peter would emphasize those passages. I would emphasize the passages in Tocqueville, in which Tocqueville essentially argues that if you want to avoid the ultimate degradation of democracy, of democracy in some ways contradicting itself by creating a new kind of despotism, what democracy needs to do is to act against its own nature. In other words, it needs to resist its tendency to hollow out the non-democratic inheritances that it received from a pre-modern world, including, of course, Christianity The old university and the liberal arts tradition, associations, the art of association, human beings gathering together to practice self-governance, still the formation of the family. And he even praises the role of women in the home of cultivating a kind of democratic ethos. And while Tocqueville maybe didn't foresee the egalitarian impulse leading women out of the home, you could say that that aspect of Tocqueville's thought certainly isn't contradicted by what we have seen. So whereas I read Tocqueville as basically saying, if you want to prevent much more worse than better, democracy needs in some ways to act against its own nature. You know, what my argument in my book is really just warmed over Tocqueville, which is that liberalism, liberal democracy, left unchecked, leads to its own self-contradiction. The thesis of my book is just pure ripping off of Tocqueville, which is liberalism fails because liberalism succeeds. And that's kind of Tocqueville's argument as well, or at least his fear. And here, here, I guess, I would push an argument against Peter. In many ways, the things that Peter would often emphasize is better for modern people tended to emphasize material things. Right? Our Material lives are more comfortable, like McDonald's coffee is pretty good, you know, as well as our kind of independence, the personal freedom that Locke endorses. But it turns out that when you combine those two things, I think, when you combine a kind of material comfort with a kind of increasing belief in our own independence and autonomy, that isn't just better. That actually is worse. I think it makes us worse as creatures. I think many of the things that we're seeing taking place in advanced liberal democracies, the kind of, you know, you could begin to sort of talk about various pathologies, our you know, incredible levels of debt, our willingness to sell out the financial futures of our children for our own indulgence today. I mean, we could just go down the list of pathologies. I I think the environmental scourge, you know, our consumption of the Earth's resources for our own benefit. My own conclusion is that we are actually not getting better and worse. We're actually getting worse. And Peter consistently held the point that, no, you know, it's it's all being balanced. At the end of the day, I think Peter would still hold that position. He would think that in many ways, the worse has gotten worse. And I don't know if he would hold the view that the better has gotten sufficiently better. I suspect that he would look at the world that we're seeing, and certainly in our politics right now, as decidedly we're in a worse place now. That's at least what I guess. But I, I also know that he would maintain his understanding of the Tocquevillean view, that it's not simply just, uh, it's not unidirectional. And at the end of the day, what Peter would argue is that we're not going to eliminate our nature. We're not going to eliminate the fact that we are wandering and wandering creatures. So we're not going to eliminate the deepest source that makes it always likely that everything will always be getting better and worse, because that's the nature of what it is to be a human. So I think that basic divide was one over which many of our debates were focused, and certainly focused as well on whether or not America was destined to be better or worse. Depending on how we understood its founding and the trajectory of that founding to our current moment. So, it's probably just worth putting on the record that for all of my praise of Peter, which I hope has been uh, plentiful, uh, that we had some serious differences. And those differences, I think, were the source of a lot of clarifying debates, you know, ongoing. I think, you know, Peter's students
0: and myself and my students uh, will continue to debate for many years to come. Yes, certainly, this is not just important or important for philosophy, but it is also urgent. It's something we should be thinking about. And I think you're right, the basic position of Peter, I was just rereading it since it's the introduction to postmodernism, rightly understood, is that Tocqueville is split between a Pascalian side that insists on human nature and a Rousseauian side that insists on historical transformation. He says that Tocqueville couldn't explain in Democracy in America why he is in favor of liberty, but he said he was and he would never stop. Indeed, there's a very famous passage where Tocqueville says that when somebody wants to put him in chains, it doesn't matter to him whatsoever whether it's done in the name of equality or whatever. He's just fully and completely and permanently against it. This love of liberty, somewhat fragile in modern times, is something he wishes to testify to personally, I think partly because, as you suggest, it is quite weak. It needs this personal testimony of the author. It needs our personal investment. We have to, to some extent, rebel against what we fear is happening. I think that's an important part of what you're saying and I incline to the gloomier view that you present. There's so much evidence for it. But I've learned over time to ask myself indeed what would Peter say where would he find this pascalian side of Tocqueville and of our modernity? This restlessness, this dissatisfaction, this wandering that can restore us to our nature. That is to say it will allow us to shake off some of the delusions and even some of the bad habits which are harder to shake off than mere ideas, of course. And one thing that's been on my mind more recently about Peter is at some point he makes this criticism of Alan Bloom or at any rate a very insightful remark about the closing of the American mind. He says, Bloom, first of all, presents American students in elite America as flat-souled, nice people, but there's no there there. They're already the cutaways of themselves. And Peter says, but then he comes around and says, not the children of divorce, however. Niceness is rigidity with them, and beneath that there is rage, boundless like the sea. Peter points out, well, we have those children of divorce now. They are the nation. Of course, this is what Socrates would also say. This relativism, the freedom of democracy, will turn into tyranny, into a desire for extreme violence against those mm. who perceive as limiting your freedom. Relativism leads to dogmatic oppression. One version of nihilism leads to the other. But I think Peter also suggests that there's a kind of hope in this conflict of this getting better and worse of things, that you do have the evidence in all cases of the deep dissatisfaction of the unwillingness to simply go in the direction of the transhuman and of history of the abolition of man. There's conflict and where there is conflict, there are principles and disagreements that can lead people back to sanity, but always at the price, of course, conflict is risky. Political disagreements are dangerous, and today we see that they can also be bloody again. It had been a while in America, but now over political statements, people are killing each other. It's not exactly murder in the streets, but there have been people dying in these riots. And so we see, indeed, that there is a lot of danger to this disagreement, but I think it would suggest conflicts about justice will encourage people to be more serious about their human nature, less deluded or complacent. They will have to take their claims somewhat more seriously. And I think that's also the kind of hope that Tocqueville can offer. The march towards soft despotism is not predetermined, but we are tempted. But somehow a weakness we find it very hard to fight off. And that weakness, as you so well have shown, comes from our strengths. That is the tragic lesson of it. And perhaps, again, it takes political conflict, it takes misery for people to realize that our strengths can lead to weaknesses, that our virtues can lead to certain vices, that we are not simply progressive, we are to some extent tragic. Sometimes getting what we want is the ruin of us. Indeed, if we are to look for correctives to excesses of democracy, to the somewhat mad simple-mindedness of our liberalism. Well, it will take smacking upside the head for people to wake up.
1: Yeah. So again, I think this really highlights, I think, an area of at least ambiguity in Peter's thought, which is, you know, what is that? What constitutes that smacking upside of the head? (laughs) There's a side of Peter. And I think this is why, you know, when we began speaking, we talked about, you know, how he was so easygoing and, you know, he wasn't going to run around shrieking that his hair is on fire because, you know, we're becoming more locky. (laughs) He had a lot of equanimity. You know, he believed in a kind of Southern Stoicism. He was a deep admirer of a kind of Stoic tradition in the South and wrote about it at some length. Walker Percy is arguably, aside from Topa, his favorite thinker, precisely because I think he represents the Southern Stoic tradition. But there's a danger to the Stoicism, as much as I'm personally attracted to it as well, which is what happens when you're in a condition in which things are decisively getting worse, In particular, the political condition in which one finds oneself threatens to be so deforming of our human personhood that while we can have faith as Stoics that at some point in time there will be a correction. How much time should we be willing to wait in a Stoic manner for that correction to take place? And here's where I think there's a kind of ambiguity, because Peter was personally profoundly and deeply anti-communist. He thought that the Soviet Union was evil, and he thought the United States' effort to combat the Soviet Union and the expenditure of massive amounts of money, (laughs) of our federal budget, military expenditures, as well as the expenditure of a lot of our effort during the latter part of the 20th century, that that was necessary. I think Peter would say that it was necessary to combat the false ideology of the Soviet Union. I think, in that sense, Peter said, you know, there can be conditions in which our politics is not simply getting better and worse; it's getting really worse. We actually have to take action to combat the political evil in which we find ourselves. And I suppose where Peter and I to some extent differed was that I tend to hold the view that that condition is increasingly going to define our condition in the United States, that we are no less subject to conditions becoming worse, more worse than they are better. And I think Peter's argument tended to be more that, look, you know, things are both better and worse, so we shouldn't adopt such a condition of extreme criticism toward our condition, that it obscures what's good and what's better about our condition. So there were ways in which Peter, I think, truly endorsed that there were conditions, there were times in which you needed a much more active form of resistance to current circumstances. But I think when it came especially to the American regime, Peter did hold the view that because America was born of this compromise of the Lockean and the Christian tradition, that it was built into its DNA, that everything was going to be getting better and worse in America, perhaps as far as the eye could see. And I guess there, you know, Peter and I just differed. I was of the view that we were a declining regime for lots of reasons. And I was not then, and I am not sanguine about the course of America, unless we are active in at least understanding why it is that things are more likely to get worse than they are likely to get better. I say that now without Peter being able to answer me, and I know Peter would have an absolutely slicing answer to what I just said. (laughs) Uh, I might get away with it at the moment without the deserving response I know Peter would give. (laughs)
0: <laughs> that's true. That, that is the situation. Now we have to try and figure out what he might have said. But I share your worry. I also wonder, you know, America made it through one civil war. Is it going to the next one? America has much going for it. By now we have the evidence that it is the only modern political enterprise that's sound. No country lasts forever. But even early, America went through a civil war in four score and seven years of founding, even going back to the Declaration So there is more danger than Peter seems to me to have allowed. He didn't talk much about the Civil War. There's another case where he was forcefully on the side of the Union, on the side of Lincoln, on the side of democratic equality and Christian equality. However catastrophic the war, it had to be fought. So indeed, he had very strong commitments as an American, as a Christian. But we're in this situation where we have indeed a very complex series of practical questions to deal with. If you insist that things are also kind of getting better, does that make you inclined to act, to prove it, to benefit from this opportunity for improvement, or does it make you complacent? If you think that things aren't getting better, but worse, does that make you eager to help things out or paralyzed, depressed? Yeah. There are political and psychological questions that we will have to deal with. Are we likelier to be taken seriously and therefore to become truly practical by saying the harshest thing we can say or the least harsh? Of course, at some point, this becomes questions of statesmanship, and I am not a politician. This is not really my problem. But we have to think about them and to consider, as things get worse, what attitude we should take to them. I think his point ultimately was that, however you think about a changing political situation, whether you're hopeful in the short term or in the long term, you do have to be hopeful for some. Yeah, I I think, Peter, in some ways there might have been, we could call almost a stylistic intent
1: of a kind of quiescence, or a kind of, again, this kind of stoic view. You know, I think maybe you could say that Peter was constitutionally, as a human being, he was averse to extremities, to extreme reactions. I think he probably saw there was a tendency among, certainly among progressives, toward an extremism in the name of a better future. That in the name of a better and more perfected future, what we saw in the Soviet Union, people would be willing to commit any atrocity to lead us to that more perfect future. But I think he also saw a danger among conservatives of a different kind of extremity, which was in the belief that things were worse, that the past was better. A dangerous nostalgia could perhaps not commit, I don't think we can point to many conservative atrocities as such, but you know, he was a man of the South. And so he understood that in the South, there was a tradition which there was a kind of nostalgia for an unjust regime, right? That nostalgia was a dangerous, perhaps it could be, an equally dangerous political stance. And yet, I think it's important to point out that Peter considered himself conservative. You know, there was no question in his mind where he stood. And so I think if we go back to that original definition, what's the difference between a conservative and a progressive? I think Peter deeply ultimately did hold the view that we have to be perhaps more attentive to the ways in which things are getting worse. But Peter wanted to insist as a matter, I think, of wanting to achieve a kind of moderation that we shouldn't focus upon that at the exclusion of understanding the ways in which things have also gotten better. And I think, come back, there's a certain kind of stylistic, almost pedagogy to how Peter positioned himself, because I think he really intended to be more a corrective among his fellow conservatives he probably didn't think he was going to have a lot of influence among progressives. So I think he saw himself as this, again, stylistic demeanor, as well as the kind of teaching he tried to advance, to be a corrective, especially among his fellow conservatives, and especially what he saw as the tendency of conservatives, you know, to say the sky is falling and everything is terrible. That can induce its own kind of quiescence. And I think this is where, you know, Peter was a pretty fierce critic of Rod Dreyer, for example. He actually thought when you get to the point where you think everything is so bad that nothing can be done, then this idea of the Benedict option becomes the only way that you think you can respond to events and you become a kind of advocate of a kind of retreat. And so I think Peter thought that only by having a kind of quiescence about how bad things are, or at least an equanimity about how bad things are, can you prevent a worse kind of quiescence or a worse kind of a disposition that can incline one to a retreat from politics. I think there's a certain kind of pedagogy that Peter wanted to commend, especially among his fellow conservatives.
0: Yes, I think you're right. This is a very good point that, in a way, Peter did act as a statesman. He wrote and spoke prudently, always encouraging. And I think at two different levels, this is how I also think about his writing and his activity. First of all, at, Indeed, at the level of pedagogy and psychology, we tend to be gloomy. <laughs> In the years I read Peter and talked with him and wrote for him, I gradually became more upbeat, somewhat sunnier. I've noticed since then that I took from him the idea that you should treat other people, especially young conservatives, this way. Because I know somewhat too many 20-somethings were very, very gloomy. Indeed, it is the temptation we have to face, and therefore it's a good deed and a helping hand that we have to throw each other. Since we are conservatives, we do have to care for each other, even in this way. But I think there's also another level to Peter's cheer as a writer and as an examining arguments. He writes about Rousseau and Kozhev talking about how philosophy has to lead to annihilation of human beings, and he does it with equanimity, without any outrage. I think he's trying to show that conservatives should be even smarter than progressives. They should be even more far-sighted and better able to understand what's happening, not to give in to their indignation when it comes to thinking. In life, of course, indignation is often good and necessary, but it's not as helpful in writing or thinking. And I think he was worried that in between this psychological disposition we share towards gloom and the kind of indignation at the shameless things people are doing, people now defacing the monuments of the first free black regiment in the civil war, fighting for the union and for liberty and the abolition of slavery, or indeed in England, defacing the statue of Churchill, which shows you, if anything, people who are screaming against fascism today would have certainly been fascists or at least collaborators back then. It was people like Churchill who were against it and who actually fought, risking life. You know, there is much to be angry at, but that tends to put you in this very bad attitude, especially towards America, since Americans don't like to be criticized. It's hard to persuade Americans to listen to criticism. But also, I've noticed a bigger problem. Over the years, I I look at my conservative friends and encourage them to stop using the words human nature as spitting. People often say, you know, that's human nature for you, as though there's nothing good in human nature. They've come to associate it with bad things. But there's much that's good and wonderful in human nature as well. And so I think there is indeed a danger of quiescence, of bitterness, of non-willingness to see where we might find advantages and allies and possible victories, real solid victories, because it's kind of dirty, because it's kind of demeaning. We should instead be indignant. But you can't be indignant 24-7. This is not how I talk to my wife or my friends. I have to go on with life at the same time and to try to find good things that have a future. I once tried to summarize the view I thought Peter had of things from Socrates to Heidegger mixed with Pascal, mixed with, uh, indeed, the Christian teaching with Jesus Christ, kind of American Thomism, the way he thought about Walker Percy, whom you so rightly say was his favorite American thinker. I told him that love is the mood of knowledge, and he said, this is something I can approve of. This is the right way to think about things. For you to truly have knowledge of things, you you have to have some love as well. It has to orient you, to dispose you, to think things. It's the right mood. And I think that indeed is something that uh, I found, uh, myself and my friends, that we need. And it might be, as you suggest, more broadly something that conservatives need to fight off the doom and gloom. Well, sir, thank you so much for joining me. We've had such a long, wide-ranging conversation. It was a pleasure and very refreshing to think about these things, including, of course, all the complexities and the objections we have to bring up. Because friends though we are to Peter, we could say like uh, Aristotle, were also friends of truth first. This, indeed, it's what we love about him. He was insightful and a serious inquirer. And perhaps this will persuade our audience to go buy some of Peter's books, read postmodernism rightly understood, read Stuck with Virtue, another one of the big themes that Peter explored. We are stuck with virtue, no system, no science is going to take it away from us and we are not so debased or vulgar that we do not have concerns for improvement and self-scrutiny, we are stuck with virtue. (laughs) So, thanks a lot. And perhaps another time we'll do another conversation. No, and
1: thank you. Um, thank you for reaching out to me and especially for um, wanting to remember our mutual friend, Peter. When someone like Peter passes away, it's just hard to grasp the size and the magnitude of the gap and the hole that he leaves behind. And in these very troubled days that we're living through, I find that that hole. And that gap is, is more yawning than ever. So it was really, for me, I treasure um, being able to spend this time recalling our friend Peter. Uh, and I hope that your listeners will indeed take some time and, and try to acquaint themselves with Peter's
0: work. Thank you very much, sir. We have lost Peter, and but we have found each other. We have the friendships that he made for us or prepared for us. And this is what we have to rest our hopes on now. It's been an honor. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Goodbye.